Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend Ann Chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Megillah, daf kaf bet, 22. Um, okay, page 22 has a number of different topics. I said to Yerdena in preparation, you know, I'd really love to read the entirety of the daf. I feel this way about a lot of Masachet Megillah, because I think that some of these topics are familiar, and and this is where they originate, meaning things about tefillah, things about the the laning, the Torah reading in shul, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I want to point out that, Yardina, I know you talked about about the same thing that I'm about to talk about, which is the breakup of a particular Torah reading at a different time. Um, uh, back in Tani, talking about the Mishmarot and the Mamadot, but here it's about the Torah reading specifically on Rosh Chodesh. So we have here a Machloket Rav and Shmuel, Meitvei Parashash al Shishap Sukim Korino Tabishnaim. So here's the thing. Dana, you had said yesterday, I think, that there's this basic basic line, right, that you're going to end up having each each Torah reading, each Aliyah, that a person would go up to read from the Torah, each Aliyah has to have three verses. And then there's a whole discussion of how, and, and we didn't really go into it, but there's a whole discussion of how those three verses must be um, within the chunk of the larger text of the Torah, that it should not be isolated by parshiot to motor p'tuchot. Now, um, those are when we have, in the visual of the Torah reading, right, you have a line break, let's say, or the word, it's not really a line break from the way we think of it from word documents. It's a it's the end of the, the line of text stops, and the rest of the line is empty, and then it begins again on the new line. So it's not that there's like a, a big chunk missing, but what happens then is that that's a, an open amount of text that the the idea of having three psukim um, for each aliyah always being surrounded by more text and not that open whole of text becomes a, a pretty impressive feat of, of um, dividing up the Torah's text to make sure that all the aliyot kind of fit this picture of having uh, chunks of text all together. So the problem then is what happens when you have a text that doesn't really quite do that? Specifically here, you've got six verses. That's what the Gemara says. We've got six verses. How are you going to divide that up? So theoretically, you would say three and three, right? But what happens is, uh, I'm sorry. So so that we divide up into three and three. What happens when you have five? Okay, so the question isn't on six. The question is on five, because you need to have three verses, but you need to also be able to have, so theoretically, if you have two, so you and you have an open Parsha section there, so maybe you'll read five verses to add on what happens if the text near your section doesn't work that way. So read the paragraph of five altogether, so that you end up, instead of having two and two, you'll just have five altogether. So now the first person is going to read three verses. So now this is where it gets tricky. The second person to go up, and so you could read five, all five together, and there, or you could have the first person read three, and the second person come up and read two of these and one verse from a ne- from the next parasha, meaning not um. Not a weekly Torah reading, but these parshiot that are divided by white gaps in the text. But now we've got a problem because you've only read one verse from the next one. The Yeshom Rim Shlosha. There are those who say you have to read another three to go with those two. 
And this is the line that I've been referring to or springboarding off of that you don't read um, you don't start a new parsha of text, a new chunk of text without reading three verses as um, as that chunk of text together. So you don't just start with one. So now we're smack in the middle of a machloka between Rav and Shmuel. Maybe what we could do is say you could have the same person go back and repeat the verse. So you have three, person person one is verse one, two, three, and person two could be verse three, four, five, which is actually what we end up doing for Rosh Chodesh reading. But let's leave that aside for a moment. The idea is, according to Rav, um, no, I'm sorry, according to Shmuel, where you could divide the verse, right? That instead of saying each verse is its own full entity and cannot be separated, Shmuel suggests that you can actually read half a verse and then read half a verse. This is completely rejected in terms of practice. We never, ever, but never divide psukim um, in Torah reading, right? Even as they get fancy in the reading so that you've got three three, one, two, three, and then they read again, three, four, five, so the third verse there gets read again, there's never a, a decision to say, okay, let's cut the verse in half and read it accordingly. Um, I don't know why Shmuel thinks this is a good idea to begin with, I guess because they're just trying to figure out how to divide the text. Um, okay, I think you're done. I can hand it off to you at this point. I just wanted to make sure that we saw this machloket again because this idea of you know, practically speaking, when you go into shul on any of those readings that we said, right, Monday, Thursday, Shabbat, Mincha time, and they read these three aliyot, and it's like clockwork because everybody knows what's supposed to happen, and it's marked so nicely in any chumash or, or in the back of a sidur or whatever, but it wasn't always such a simple thing. This is, this is not sussing out. This is, you know, actual determining how are they going, what is going to be the the rules for these texts that sometimes don't divide as nicely or as long along the lines of what the halachic recommendation or or demand is so that's the i think that's the biggest conundrum and i remember the first time i learned this and then the next time there was a rosh chodesh laning in shul whatever and you pay attention and suddenly the same rosh chodesh laning that you might have heard many many times and not realized that the same three is being read again right again what because it's five psukim together so they read one, two, three, and then they read three, four, five. So as not to have four, five plus the next one, because really what happens is the next one is really two, and that's its own parsha. And then they you end up in yet a, the next, the third parsha following, and it's too much of a balagan, too too complicated, and it's rejected as as the solution. The solution ends up being read the same verse again, which by and large, by you know, in and of itself is an interesting. And I think surprising solution, except for, again, it's what we are exposed to every Rosh Chodesh. So I, I think it's interesting that they're really committed to keeping the Torah reading to what it's supposed to be. Like, in other words, they could have just added like the next three or four psukim and you wouldn't even have had this to be as an issue. But they're really committed that like it needs to be just on topic, which I think is interesting. Like what would have happened if you just read a few superfluous Sukim, but that's not really a, an option that gets entertained here. I think that's a really important point. I think the 
the especially in an era where everybody where there was a great deal of attention given to making sure that everybody understood the Torah reading to the extent that they had a Targum, they had a translator standing there, you know, verse by verse translating to make sure that everybody knew what the text meant. Um, it 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 stands to reason that exactly what you said that that the concern about the content being suitable for the time of the reading was of great significance. I feel like nowadays so many people kind of, I mean, I hope everybody's preparing and, and paying attention to the Torah reading, but I feel like certainly growing up, I think I heard the Torah and the, and the you know, the melodiousness of it without necessarily understanding what the words meant, except for here and there. And I feel like the to- this says, no, make sure you know what it means because we, they, Chazal, took great effort to make sure that it was really what it was supposed to be. I'm going to move on to a peculiar story that's at the end of the daf. Uh, well, they're going back to look at when a story about Rav. Um, and it reads as follows, Gufa. Rav Yikolei Babel Batanit Tzibor. So Rav was visiting Babel um, on a Tanit Tzibor. Now, they brought this story earlier to try to figure out how many aliyot you have on a Tanit Tzibor. But they go back to a different detail here with the story. Kam Krav Sifra. So he stood up and he read from the Torah. Petach Barech Hatam Barech. He started, when he began to read, he gave, recited a bracha, but he did not conclude with a bracha. Um, everybody then went down and fell on their faces, meaning bowed on the floors while they said tachanun, but Rub did not fall on his face. Why is it that Rub did not fall on his face? So the Gemara gives a simple answer. Because it was a stone floor. So if any of you have ever davened on Rosh Hashanah Yom, on Yom Kippur um, or Rosh Hashanah, you know, when we do the bowing piece, very often you'll see people sort of put uh, a, um, you know, a cloth or something in front of them if it's a stone floor. This is much more common to see in Israel than it is in the United States because in Israel there's many more stone floors. And I'm always interested now this has even become like a type of Judaica. It'll say something on it. They make pretty ones and things like that. Um, and so it's basically that we don't bow on stone forms. The Tanya, so they quote a Braiso about this. And here they start with the Pasuk from Vayikra, chapter 26, verse 1. The Right? Uh, on it, any type of stone, you should not bow down in your land. Right? Meaning anywhere other than the temple, that's not where you should bow down. Right? So Aleha means... You shall not, uh, meaning you shall not bow down uh, uh, upon your land, anywhere in your land, other, but you should bow down upon the stone in the temple. Kid Ula, the Amar Ula. So this is according to the opinion of Ula, because Ula said, Lo Astra Toa El Bilvad. The only thing the Torah prohibited was just a stone floor. Then the Gemara goes on, Right? So if so, why did Rav not bow down? Afilu Kule Namit. We see everybody else there bowed down. So is it possible that there was really a stone floor there? Kame de Rav Habe. So they say, okay, maybe the stone floor part was only in front of Rav. The rest of the floor was in stone. So it says, fine. So then Rav should have gone back to the rest of the congregation. In other words, moved his seat so he could have bowed down with everybody else. So he said he didn't want to trouble the congregation to make room for him. Like if he moved, they would have to make room for him. The vice, Ayman, if you want, you could also say, that when Rav would bow down, now this is hard to imagine because we say Tachnun today, we just sort of hunch over in our seat. 
but he would actually get down and stretch out his arms and legs. Like in other words, he would fully be prostrated on the ground, right? Um, the kids at Ula, right? And therefore, this is according to Ula, Ula, Lo Asra Ella Pishu Bilbat. That when we talk about bowing on a stone floor, we mean when you're fully prostrated, not sort of, you know, just kneeling and bowing sort of the way some people do, even on, Yom, on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, they don't fully uh, bow all the way down. But this is what they're talking about. But it's interesting to see that there were a variety of minhagim about how tachnun was actually done. Um, and so then the Gemara goes on, Billy Pol, I'll pay, right? So, you know, okay, so Rub, uh, you know, maybe he should have just done, you know, bowed only on his face, right? Maybe similar to what we do today. He didn't have to actually, you know, fully prostrate himself. Right? He didn't want to change his his custom. Um, if you want, here's another reason. An important person is different, and this is according to the opinion of Rabbi Elazar. To Amar Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Elazar said, So this is interesting. An important person is not permitted to fall on his face unless he will be answered the way Yoshua ben Nun was answered. And so here they quote a pasuk from Yoshua, chapter 7, verse 10, right? Where Hashem says, get up. In other words, Hashem basically says, why would you lay down on your face? It's like, it's not it's not respectful for such an important person to do this. And that's why Rob didn't want to do this at all. So this seems to be almost like a total 180, which seems to be saying Rob didn't do anything like this at all because this was not something that Rub of his stature would do at all. And that's why it has nothing to do with the stone floor or anything like that. But what it has to do with is that this is just simply not a way a big rabbi should conduct himself. Um, and then finally, I'm not going to read this part. Then the rabbis get into, well, I guess I'll read it, uh, different types of bowing. Right? When we talk about kida, it's falling on one's face, your face to the ground. They get a pasuk from Bathsheba, from the story of Bathsheba and, and, and King David, right? That she fell on her face. Kiriyah al birkayim, right? Kriyah is uh, falling onto your uh, knees. Um, and her, they quote a pasuk from Malachim um, Aleph, right? That he rose from the altar of God from kneeling upon his knees. This is talking about Shlomo. Right? Hishtachabe is bowing with one's arms and legs. And here they quote a pasuk from Yaakov, uh, w- referencing Yaakov from Bereshi chapter 37, verse 10. Right? He's talking about these are the dreams that Yosef has. Shall I and your mother and brothers indeed bow down to you uh, to the ground? And then they bring again this famous story about Levi, which I believe this is the third time that we've seen it, um, which is about how he did Kida and he actually became lame, but also that this may have been actually a punishment. So the story about Levi, this is, you know, really gets repeated over and over again in uh, the Gemara itself. So, you know, I just wanted to read this part because we still do this practice that many people don't bow when it's a stone floor. But I think the other part of the Gemara is not as well known that it has nothing to do with stone floor, but is actually more of an issue that just this isn't something that a person of a stature like Rub should have been uh, participating in. And again, when we see these types of Gemaras, I think these are always interesting to read because how the Minhagim around davening sort of became developed. And that even in the time of the Amorayim, you know, they would really look to rabbis to be like, oh, is this how we do something or not how we do something? 
and really watching the Gemara sort of take the time to explain what may have motivated Rev's behavior here. I just want to note that I think for people who may not be familiar with this practice, um, if you don't, if your synagogue doesn't have a stone floor, if you've got carpeting, if you've got wood, if you've got linoleum, then then it's really fine, right? Meaning the whole concern turns out to be about, you know, a worry about mosaic and about possibly idolatry, you know, or, or looking like idolatry, right? Which is is not relevant if you if there's no stone there that wouldn't, right? If the hit issue is bowing down on a stone floor and you don't have a stone floor, then bowing down on carpeting is never considered the same thing. Some people still maintain the the practice like of of putting a cloth down or something to to keep the minhag to keep the custom alive but it's not the same halachic concern the first time i ever saw this done your dana was in the old maimonides shul right because there was a, a section of the floor i think that was really stone or at least it looked like stone so people it was were nervous stone. about the floor it. was stone yes it was like a concrete floor, floor. yep yep so as compared and then in israel yes in israel it's a very common thing because Israel, Israel has a lot of rock, so they make the floors out of rock nearly always. Um, but I think that is, I just want to, I, I don't want to belabor the point. I just want to make it, the point clear that it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing if you haven't seen this. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank is reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.